years ago when my grandmother Ross passed away, we were living in Muskogee, and she lived in Stratford, and that's where the funeral was going to be. So we drove from Muskogee to Stratford uh, for the funeral, and, and we stopped in Seminole on I-40 to turn off to go into Ada and then to Stratford. And when we stopped at the Loves that was there, lo and behold, our new pastor and two of our deacons and a fellow from our church were there. Uh, and, and we saw them. They happened to be pulling in just a little bit ahead of us, and we saw them. Uh, and we were joking because they didn't even know how to get to Stratford, much less how to get to the Methodist church in Stratford. And, of course, it was the day before smartphones that could guide you and all of that. Uh, and I told them, I said, you know, it's, it's lucky that we met you guys here. What a coincidence that we both stopped at the same time. And, and my pastor said something to me that it, it was almost life-changing. In that off-the-cuff moment, he said, I've surrendered my life to the sovereign God of the universe. There is no such thing as a coincidence. I mean, I knew God was sovereign, and I understood the idea that God was all-powerful. But until that moment, it had never really clicked in my mind that the sovereign God of the universe could orchestrate events in my everyday, ordinary life to cause me to be where He wanted me to be, to, you know, just for something like that so that they could follow us in to the funeral. It, it totally changed my thinking about God's sovereignty over our lives. I mean, have you ever really thought about that? That God is sovereign in such a way that He orchestrates events in our lives to have us where He wants us to be so that we can do the things that He wants us to do. I mean, to me, that's an amazing Thought. And it's a, such an important concept for us to embrace and to understand. Right? I mean, God is the all-powerful, all-sovereign God of the universe. And, and I know that if we were to go around and say, do you believe that? We would all say, yes. But it's important that we really believe it deep in our soul. Because in life, there are going to be any number of issues that come up that will be far beyond our control. And many times the circumstances that are beyond our control, they're going to be negative and they're going to be painful. And if we don't understand about God's power and God's sovereignty, then it can lead us to despair over the circumstances of our life. Now, for some, this requires a massive shift in our way we think. Now, not because we don't believe in the power of the sovereignty of God, but because we have Believe the, war, the power and the sovereignty of God in such a way that we only find comfort in it when things are going our way. Right? For many people, many Christians only find comfort in the power and the sovereignty of God when they find money. They didn't know they had it just the time that they needed. Right? And of course we rejoice in times like that. For many Christians, they can only find comfort in the power and the sovereignty of God when, when for some reason their car slides off the road and no one's hurt. And again, we rejoice in things like that. We only find comfort in the power and the sovereignty of God when a previous bad test result suddenly turns good. Again, we, we do rejoice in those sort of things. However, the way we have believed it, this power and the sovereignty of God, it brings us no comfort if we don't find the money, if the wreck turns out worse than we would have liked, if the test result isn't reversed. And, and what we want to think, whether we would ever say it this way or not, is that God is in control when things go good, but He's not in control when things go bad. The problem with that 
that does not describe the God of the Bible. The God of the Bible is just as much in control when things go bad as He is when things go good. I think before we can ever truly know God and love God and find comfort in God, we must move to the place where God's power and sovereignty brings us as much comfort when everything goes bad as it does when everything goes good. That no matter what kind of circumstances may come into our life, that we remember that God is still in control. We're out of control. We can't shake it. We can't do anything, but He can. No matter how bad they are, He has not lost control, not even a little. He is still God. And He can still do anything at any time that He chooses to do. Now, trusting that God is all-powerful and all-sovereign, it is critical to our being able to work on the mission of God. It's because the mission of God is hard. Right? The work that God calls the people of God to do is hard. Now, in, in a lot of ways, it's hard all by itself. Right? Even if everything goes well, it is hard to do the things that God wants us to do. But everything doesn't always go well, does it? There is opposition that we face from the world, the flesh, and the devil. And they oppose our work as we try to do the work of God. And not only do they oppose us, there are times where it just feels like they win, aren't there? I mean, there are things that happen in our life, and we look at it, and it looks like we have lost, and the world, the flesh, and the devil has won. And then, there are times... Where no matter how hard we work, how much we do, how hard we pray, how faithfully we believe, doesn't seem to be producing any positive results. The people we're sharing Jesus with aren't believing in Jesus. The people we're praying for aren't making any changes in their life. Nothing seems to be happening despite all of our best efforts and hard work. How do we keep going? Why do we keep going? We keep going because our God is the sovereign, all-powerful God of the universe. And this is important for what we're looking at tonight. Open your Bible to Ezra 4, verse 24. At page 365 in the Pew Bible. Ezra 4 and 24 says, Thus the work of God and the house of God which is in Jerusalem ceased, and it was discontinued until the second year of the reign of Darius, king of Persia. Then the prophet Haggai and Zechariah, the son of Ido, prophets prophesied to the Jews who were in Judah and Jerusalem in the name of the God of Israel who was over them. So Zerubbabel, the son of Shilatil and Jeshua, the son of Josedek, rose up and began to build the house of God, which is in Jerusalem. And the prophets of God were with them, helping them. Title of the message tonight is Right People, Right Place. Let's pray. Our Father, we love you. You are great and awesome and wonderful and amazing. You are all powerful and you are the sovereign God. Over the, the most minute details of our life, Father. We know that you can act in those. And that you can speak into those. And you can do anything 
But you want to do it any time and no one can stop you, the Bible says. So Father, we rejoice in that tonight. We rejoice in the fact that you can do exceedingly abundantly above all that we could ask or imagine. We rejoice, Father, in your care and your control over the circumstances of our lives. Father, tonight as we begin to look at Ezra and the people beginning to do the work that you had called them to do and and the role that the prophets played in that, we ask, Father, that you would let our hearts and our minds be centered upon you. Father, we want to get everything out of your word tonight you want for us to have. Lord, we don't want to make something up. We don't want to push back against truth. We want to embrace the Word. We want to live the Word. We want to be changed because of our time in the Word tonight. Father, fill me with your Holy Spirit and give me clarity of thought and clarity of speech. Guide me that I would speak your words and your ways for your glory. Nothing more, nothing less. Have your way in our hearts and in our lives so that we could go out and bring you glory as we do your work, trusting confidently in your power and sovereignty over our lives. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, 16 years has passed. 16 years passes from Ezra 4.24 to Ezra 5.2. doesn't look like it because it's just a few verses, but it's a long period of time that goes by. Now, in that 16 years, the people had basically settled down. They had built homes. They had got jobs. They had started families. And basically gone on with life apart from the work God had called them to do. So God sends prophets, Haggai and Zechariah, to stir them up. He sends them with challenging and encouraging messages to stir them up so that they will revive the work. And they will get up and recontinue the work. What we're going to do tonight is we're going to look at one of those messages. So turn now to Haggai 1. Page 718. Haggai 1, it says, In the second year of King Darius, in the sixth month, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet to Zerubbabel, the son of Shiltiel, the governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, saying, Thus speaks the Lord God of hosts. This people says the time has not come. The time that the Lord's house should be built. Then the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet saying, Is it time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses and that this temple lie in ruins? Now therefore thus says the Lord of hosts, Consider your ways. You have sown much and bring in little. You eat, but you do not have enough. You drink, but you're not filled with drink. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages, earns wages to put in a bag with holes. Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Go up to the mountains and bring wood and build the temple that I may take pleasure in it and be glorified, says the Lord. You looked for much, but indeed it came to little. When you brought it home, I blew it away. Why? Says the Lord of hosts. Because of my house is in ruins, while every one of you runs to his own house. Therefore the heavens above you withhold the dew, the earth withholds its fruit. And I called a drought on the land, and the mountains and the grain, the new wine and the oil, on whatever ground brings forth, on men, on livestock, and on all the labor of your hands. Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shiltiel, Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, with all the remnant of the people, 
obeyed the voice of the Lord their God, the words of Haggai the prophet, as the Lord their God had sent him. And the people feared the presence of the Lord. Then Haggai, the Lord's messenger, spoke the Lord's message to the people, saying, I am with you, says the Lord. So the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Shiltiel, the governor of Judah, the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. And they came and they worked on the house of the Lord of hosts, their God, on the 24th day of the sixth month and second year of King Darius. Now look especially at verse 12 and 13. Haggai more or less finishes his message in verse 11. Verse 12, the people get up and they start to work. They say, you know what? It is wrong what we're doing. We need to take part in, and go beyond laying the foundation and rebuild the temple. And after they jump up to do the work, God then begins to do something in their midst. One, He tells them, I, I am with you. He blesses them with His presence. And then He stirs their heart. Now, we'll talk about this. We're going to actually look more at this chapter next week. But something interesting to think about. Is it not interesting that they started the work before the Lord stirred their hearts or stirred their spirits? Don't we often think of revival coming the other way? God revives us and we start the work. God fills us with excitement and we get up and yeehaw and do the things. On the other hand, what we see here is that they do the work in response to the word. Then God pours out his spirit. Then God begins to stir their hearts. That's just something to think about for next week. I want us to see this, though, because we aren't going in depth with Haggai 1 this week. Instead, I want to share some stuff with one of my commentaries and then elaborate some application for us. One of my Bible commentaries is written by a guy named James Montgomery Boyce. And there was a big section of his comments on Haggai 1 that really struck a chord with me. I couldn't get away from all day yesterday and all morning this morning. So I feel they're relevant for us. As we seek to do the work of God. Now let me share. This is a long portion out of a commentary. And then we'll get into the rest of it. He says. We're not going to get very far in studying Haggai. Unless we realize. That this was not an unredeemably bad period in Judah's history. In our studies so far. We've become accustomed. To the prophetic warnings of God's judgment. On a sinful and self-righteous people. But the last three prophets spoke to a different situation. Their audience was the remnant. These people were not like those who had lived in Israel and Judah previously. True, they were neglecting to build the temple, and this was serious in God's sight. It was an indication that their spiritual priorities were not right. They were living for themselves rather than for God's glory, but still, they were the right people living in the right place, wanting to do the right work for the right reasons. These points are worth looking at in detail. First, he says, in Haggai, we're dealing with the right people. Select people whose devotion and zeal for God were evident. When Cyrus issued his decree permitting the Jews to return to their homeland and rebuild the temple, most of the exiled Jews stayed in Babylon, where they had settled down and prospered during a period of exile. It was only these few who actually left Babylon and made the long journey back to Judah with Zerubbabel. Second, the people to whom God directs his word through Haggai were in the right place. That is, they were in Jerusalem with its environments and the call of God and were not in Babylon among those who had preferred their fixed way of life to the rigors of a return. This is not insignificant. Third, this remnant to whom Haggai spoke also wanted to be about the right work. As Ezra tells it, the first thing the people did when they arrived in Jerusalem was take up a free will offering toward the rebuilding of the house of God. It was a substantial offering. 
The people used this money to pay masons and carpenters and buy transport cedar logs from Lebanon. Then they began the work and progressed as far as laying the foundation of the great temple. These people clearly wanted to serve God and had put His work above their own interest. Finally, the people were working for the right reasons. We could imagine them rebuilding the temple to assert themselves with some sense of distorted national pride. The Babylonians destroyed our temple, but we'll show them who will have the last word. We'll build it again. We could imagine them attempting to construct a monument to their own fierce independence like in the Tower of Babel. Those were not their motives, so far as we're told. Their sole desire was to please God. Right now again, look at verse 12 through 14. They started the work. God poured out His presence. God stirred their spirits. We know the end of the story, don't we? The end of the story is that the temple was rebuilt. As as improbable as it was that this group of people could rebuild the temple, they did. And what we learn is that God worked powerfully through these right people in the right place doing the right work for the right reasons. This is a lesson for us. God works powerfully through the right people in the right place doing the right work for the right reasons. This applies to us. We are the right people in the right place doing the right work for the right reasons. So we should look for and expect that God will work powerfully in us and through us and for us. I'm going to take Boyce's outline and I want to show you why we're the right people in the right place doing the right work for the right reasons. Right? So first, we're the right people. Several years ago, a guy from Tulsa preached at the state meeting, the Oklahoma State meeting, and said, Free will Baptists often have an inferiority complex. And I think he was right. When most people talk about Baptists, they aren't talking about free will Baptists. When the Southern Baptist Convention meets for their annual meeting, it makes the news and it trends on social media. When Free Will Baptists meet for their annual meeting, probably half of people who attend Free Will Baptist churches don't even know that it's going on. Free Will Baptist churches, while there are some large Free Will Baptist churches, they are not typically the big churches in their town. These sorts of things and others add up and they cause Free Will Baptists to often feel less significant than other denominations. And I think there's a measure of this that's filtered down even into our church. I can think of statements that have been made through the years that communicate this sort of a mindset. And what I want us to understand tonight is that there is no reason for that sort of a mindset in our church. There is no reason for us as the Northridge Free Will Baptist Church to feel inferior to anybody, any church, anywhere, in any town. Let me give you some reasons for it. First, this church was started from the ground up in a time when Free Will Baptists had no money to help plant a church. When people from Gaiman sent word to the state office that they wanted a church out here, a Free Will Baptist church, they sent two things. Wade Jernigan and $25 for three months. That's it. When the last paycheck came in from the state office, they told Wade two things. No more help was coming. Why on earth did you come way out here? And there's been a lot of rough times in our church from that day 
to this. And yet the people have persevered. And so the church has persevered. Through the years, this church has preached the gospel to probably thousands of people that have come in and out of our church through the years. In through the years, we have seen hundreds of people saved, baptized, marriages restored, lives changed, prodigals fall away and come back. We have seen all of that here. This church has helped feed the poor in Guyman. We have helped provide a place for the homeless and the transients to stay. We have done much good for our community in the years that this church has existed. This church started and ran a Christian school for 26 years. In that time we had thousands of students. We taught these students math, science, history, English, and music. All the stuff they'd get if they went to a public school. A friend of mine that's a retired public school teacher told me he was always glad to get NCS students in his class because they were well behaved, they were on par or ahead of their students. Many of our students came from bad homes and bad situations. Some kids came to us because they'd been bullied in the public school. At NCS they found a safe place where they were cared for and they were helped. We also taught every one of these students the Bible. We told them about Jesus. We shared the gospel with them. And maybe hundreds of those kids made professions of faith through the 26 years that the school existed. For many of these kids, the only Jesus they ever got came right over there. We did that. Now, I know you're saying, yes, the school is closed now. But understand, that is no reason to hang our heads in shame. I don't see it as a defeat for us. Why? Because I serve an all-powerful and all-sovereign God of the universe. He was not surprised by the circumstances that led to the closing of the school. And he wasn't powerless and unable to help during that time. I believe, I'm convinced, if God wanted us to still have the school, we would. But God obviously had something new and better for our church to do. Now, better does not communicate that the school was bad. It wasn't. It was wonderful. Better is to say that God changes us from glory to glory. Whatever new God brings into our life is always better. What God has for us is always better than anything we would have for ourselves. We're the right people for God to work powerfully through. But we're not the right people because we're so awesome. We're the right people because of who we are in Christ. Something that we often forget. But we are blessed with every spiritual blessing. We are chosen in Christ. We are children of God. We are heirs and joint heirs with Christ. We are more than conquerors through Christ. And we are part of a church that the gates of hell cannot overcome. And so much more. That is six things from three books. If we were to go through the New Testament and see all that we are in Christ, it would astound us. 
The Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead lives in us. We are dead to sin, alive in Christ. The God who does exceedingly abundantly above all that we could ask or imagine lives and works in us. There is no reason for any child of God to suffer from an inferiority complex. And there is no reason for any church of Jesus Christ to limit itself because of an inferiority complex. We are the right people to do what God wants done in God. Not only are we the right people, but we're in the right place. Now, people would say, well, we're, we're in a small town in the middle of the panhandle. Big God things don't happen there, do they? I think that's probably what they communicated to Wade when they told him, why did you come way out here? But why not? Why don't big God things happen in small town in the middle of the panhandle? Well, let me ask you this. Are we, are you, here by random chance and circumstance? Or are we here by divine design? I mean, did we just coincidentally end up here? Was it just the way life worked out? Or is there an all-powerful and all-sovereign God that orchestrated events to bring us to the place that He wanted us to be? Well, let's ask Joseph. Right? Favored son of Jacob. Pushed in a pit. Sold into slavery. Falsely accused of attempted rape. Put in prison. Left to linger there for years. Finally called out. Finally set up and, and set in the second in command in all of Egypt. His brothers who sold him into slavery come before him. And he, they are at his power and he has the ability to punish them however he wants. But he doesn't. Their dad dies. He brings them all in. He blesses them. He provides for them. Israel dies. And the brothers are afraid. He's only been good to us all these years because of dad. Now he's going to get even with us. What does Joseph say about where he's at at this time? You meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. In order to bring about, as it is this day, to save many lives. Through it all, God was always in control. And seeking to fulfill his purpose in Joseph's life. So that Joseph could be where God wanted him to be and do what God wanted him to do. This was all a part of God's divine design. Joseph's life was not random chance and circumstance. It wasn't good luck or great coincidences. It was a sovereign God who moved him into the right place at the right time for the right reason. Well, that's just Joseph. Is it just Joseph though? I mean, let's ask... Esther, whose parents are roughly, violently taken from their homeland, taken into captivity. They die. She's taken in by her family and adopted. She's raised to be a good, Jewish, godly woman. But one day she's grabbed and kidnapped to see if she's pretty enough to be queen to a pagan king. And she was. Was that just chance? Was she a victim of circumstance or bad luck? Or was all of that a part of God's divine design for Esther's life? 
Here's what Mordecai said. For if you remain completely silent at this time, relief and deliverance will arise from the Jews from another place. But you and your father's house will perish. Yet who knows whether you have come to the kingdom for such a time as this. But coincidentally, just after Esther is elevated to the throne, another person in the kingdom rises up who hates the Jews and wants them all killed. And yet right inside the king's palace is someone who can bring deliverance for the entire people in the Babylonian nation. Was that just a chance? No, of course not. God orchestrated these events of her life in such a way that Esther would be where she was so that he could work through her to deliver the Jews. Esther didn't become queen by chance. It wasn't a coincidence that Esther was queen as the trouble arose. She wasn't lucky that she was so pretty. It all happened by divine design so that God could work through Esther to deliver His people. I think it's important for us to understand we are where we are by divine design. As believers in Jesus Christ, we are not where we are because of chance or circumstance. We are where we are so that God has placed us where we are so that we can do His will for such a time as this. You and I are here at this time, in this moment, for a reason. To do the work of God in our community. We are the right people. We're in the right place. For God to work powerfully through us to accomplish His will in Guyman, Oklahoma. But we're also, we're doing the right work. What is the work that the church of Jesus Christ is supposed to do? What should our business be about when we gather, when we're a people? When you read the New Testament, you find several things that the church of Jesus Christ does consistently. They preach. The preaching of the Word has always been central to the church. Really, even prior to the church, how did God stir up Zerubbabel and the others to get up and do the work? He sent a preacher. He sent someone with a message. When the Holy Spirit descended on the day of Pentecost and a crowd gathered, what was the first thing Peter did? He preached a sermon. The church is supposed to preach the Word. But evangelize. Peter's message was evangelistic in nature and it called for a a response from them. Repent! Save yourselves from this untoward generation. The early church understood that one of the main priorities was to spread the Gospel. They understood that if they didn't tell people about Jesus, no one would know about Jesus. The church tried to reach others. They intentionally went into difficult places. They had hard conversations. They did all that they could to help bring others to know Jesus Christ as their Savior. Disciple. Discipleship is a lifelong process that begins when we're saved and continues all throughout our lives. The process of more or less becoming more like Jesus and our values, our priorities, our attitudes, our actions, our reactions, our everything. Now the church helps people with this. In a lot of ways, 
We are individual disciples that are responsible for our own growth. And then the church also helps us to grow. The church helps us see blind spots in our life that need to be brought under the authority of God's word. Areas where we're not like Jesus so that we can do it. We do that individually with one-on-one. We do it in Sunday school. We do it in church. We do it in in a multitude of ways. The church seeks to disciple people. Church worships. Worshiping God is any activity that causes us to experience God in a meaningful and a life-changing way. Worship is intended to lead us to a deeper appreciation for God, a deeper understanding of His ways, and a deeper commitment to Him. It's one of the major purposes of a local church. To worship God, to declare His praise, to shout for joy at all that He has done. And then the church is to pray. I mentioned Sunday that the early church was a praying church. They prayed when Jesus ascended to choose the guy that would replace Judas. They prayed. They were praying on the day of Pentecost. They prayed, they prayed, they prayed, they prayed, they prayed. On and on it went. They prayed constantly about everything. The church prays. So our church, are, are, we, are we doing these things? Yes. Could we do them better? Could we do them more? Yeah. There will always be room for improvement. But we're, we're doing the right things. I mean, we don't, as a church, we aren't doing crazy things. We aren't meeting together and talking about the news. Right? We aren't meeting together and, and watching Andy Griffith. Right? We are getting together and we are doing all the things that the Bible says a church is meant to do. Imperfectly? Absolutely. As faithfully as we can? Absolutely. We are the right people in the right place doing the right works. And then we're doing them for the right reasons. We're motivated for the right reasons. Look at verse 7 and 8 of Haggai to see the right reasons. Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Go up to the mountains and bring wood. Bring the, and build the temple that I may take pleasure in it and be glorified, says the Lord. Two reasons they were going to take up and do the work. To please God, to glorify God. And we'll talk more about those next week. But for now, here's what I want to ask you. Why do we do the things that we do? Why do we read our Bible? Why do we pray? Why do we come to church on a cold Wednesday night? Why do we get up early on a Sunday morning? Why do we invite people to church? Why do we give sacrificially? Why do we serve Jesus and serve others? Why do we do any of the things that we do? Do we do them to check a box because we're supposed to? Do we do them to to show somebody, to stick it in their eye, look at what we're doing, we're better than you? I don't think so. I don't know anybody that does anything that they do for Jesus for those reasons. Not in our church. Why do we do those things? We do them to please God. 
We want God to look at our lives and say, that is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Don't we? We want to hear on the day when we go to be with Jesus, we want to hear, well done, good and faithful servant, enter to the joy of your Lord. You were faithful in a few things, I'll make you a Lord over many things. We do it because we want God to be pleased with our lives. We love Him. He has saved us. He has done big things for us. And we want Him to rejoice in our lives as we rejoice in what He has done. And we do it to glorify God. We know the majority of the world isn't at church on Wednesday night. But when they drive by here and they see the cars and the lights, it's a testimony. It testifies that there is something here that we find valuable. There there is something here that matters to us. And what matters is God. And whether they agree or whether they believe or whether they embrace it, they know, at least those people, they believe it. We do what we do for the sake of God's name. We want to glorify God. We read our Bible because we know we can't glorify God on our own. We need to know how He wants us to do it. We pray so that we can be strengthened. We can be closer to Him. That we would love Him more. We we do what we do for the glory of God. We are the right people in the right place doing the right works for the right motives. So in light of what we've studied tonight, can God work powerfully through us to accomplish His will in Guyman, Oklahoma? Can God do big God things in a small town in the middle of the panhandle? The answer is absolutely. He can, He has, and I believe He will into the future. The sermon that we looked at in Haggai 2, it was called The Best is Yet to Come. I believe that for our church. I don't believe our glory days are at some point in the past. The old days were good. I'm not minimizing that. I would never minimize that. If it wasn't for the stuff that happened back there, we wouldn't be here today. We gather today and we stand on the shoulders of those who have come before us. And we rejoice in all of the sacrifices that were made to make this day, this time, this church possible. But we don't look back and say, oh, if we could go back. Oh, that we could do that again. We look forward and say the best is yet to come. The glory of the latter will be greater than the glory of the former. We have to believe that. We have to believe that. Because here's what I'm telling you. No one else will believe that for us. When the people downstate told Wade, why did you come out here? In 55 years, they haven't changed their minds. I could not tell you the number of people who told me, don't go to Ghana. My first two or three state meetings, why would you go there? Lordy, I bet you're looking for another place to go. And here's what I want you guys to know. I have had offers and offers and offers to go try it at other churches. Rarely does a year go by that somebody doesn't call me, text me, send me a message asking me to come. How many of those do you think I've tried out for? Zero. 
How many of those did I pray about? One. And only because the pastor was a, the pastor that called was a friend of mine. And he said, pray about coming out here. If it hadn't have been for that, I would not have even prayed about that. We are where God wants us to be. We are seeking to do the will of God here. He has us here for a reason. If we want God to work powerfully in our church, in our community, then we have to be the people that believe we're the right people, in the right place, doing the right works, for the right motives. Looking, hoping, expecting that our all-powerful, all-sovereign God will honor our works, will bring His presence, will send His Spirit, and will empower us to do far more in the future than we've ever done in the past. I believe it. You have to believe it too. Let's stand and we'll be dismissed in prayer.